The Last Word with Matt Cooper. John Gibbons is with us for our weekly environment spot. What world records were broken this week? Uh, good afternoon, Matt. Yeah, we, we have had an unusual week, let's say. Uh, on Monday, we had the hottest day in recorded Earth history. That was Monday of this week. That record stood for 24 hours, Matt. It was broken on Tuesday of this week. So we've had the two consecutive hottest days in recorded Earth history. Now, now explain what that all means. Okay, so basically, this is the global average surface temperature. So these are readings taken from all over the world. And by the way, the surface temperature also includes the oceans, which comprise 70% of the Earth. So this isn't just about, you know, sticking a thermometer in one place and saying it's warm or cold here. So these are based on tens of thousands of temperature readings, satellite readings from all over the world. Now, we have a strong instrumental record going back to probably the mid-19th century, about 1850. But we also have what are called proxy records uh, that go back hundreds of thousands of years, particularly through ice cores. Now, we know, for example, that Monday was, was regarded as that we know about within, within the realms of certainty, uh, the hottest day on Earth in about 145,000 years. So we're, we're, I guess we, we started this, Matt, if you like, in an interglacial period. We've obviously about 10,000 years since we exited the last ice age, but we seem to be shifting into what's called a super interglacial or a hothouse phase. Now, humans have never lived in a super interglacial. We've been through glacial cycles and interglacial cycles over the, over the, the millennia. We've never been in an, in, in a super interglacial or a hothouse period. So the, the indications are that the Earth's uh, climate system appears to be about to transition into a different phase. We know, for example, that human activity has been adding about the equivalent of 50,000 million tonnes of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere every year. And the critical thing to remember about that is that these gases are effectively there forever. So the, the greenhouse gases that were emitted in 1950 or 1970 or 1990, they're mostly still there. But every year, Matt, rather than ratcheting down on these gases, in the last 30 years, we've actually doubled the amount of gases that we're putting into the atmosphere every year. And what we're getting effectively now is we're pushing Earth systems right to the brink. And what the scientists are now saying is that we're very close. Let me give you a quote. This is from the, the uh, Europe's Copernicus Climate Change Service. They said, we've never seen anything like this before. We are in uncharted territory. We have to listen, Matt, really, really carefully to this stuff. I okay. know we get distracted by what's happening up in RTE and stuff, but seriously, that we're, in a, we're in a full-blown emergency situation here. The measurements that have been taken... And from all the various places around the world where they've taken to create the average and the use of satellites, how long have those systems been in place to do the measurements and how then can they be compared with the times when those measurement techniques and tools were not available? Sure. As I said, we have instrumental, global instrumental records that go back approximately to about 1850. They probably got really good on a, on a global level by about 1880. So call it a century and a half of instrumental records. Now, when climate, that's relative, in, in the climate system, a century and a half is a relatively short period. So climatologists do what is called uh, proxy calculations. They, they use other proxy measures to figure out what the climate was. Now we have loads of those. As I mentioned, the ice cores, we also have tree rings and a whole bunch of other proxy measures to allow us to calculate the Earth's temperature, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and other gases going back millennia. Probably realistically, Matt, we have a clear understanding of the composition of the atmosphere on Earth for about 800,000 years. 
That's a long period of time. And we, this particular phase that we're entering now, there is no analogue in the 800,000 years of physical records. Now, these, these are not impressions, these are not computer models, these are based on ice core samples taken from Antarctica that give us a direct climate reading going back, as I said, almost a million years. So that's how good it is. How good are the scientists? Probably the best in the business. And the key thing to understand here is this isn't one group of scientists, Matt. These are collaborations of thousands of scientists in in interconnected uh, disciplines, arguing about things, disagreeing, and trying to figure out what's going on. This This is purely about trying to get the best understanding of what's happening to the climate system so that they can communicate it to people like you and me so that we can communicate it to the wider public. Okay, uh, there's a lot of scepticism from listeners in relation to what you're saying. Um, Munt says, oh, it's so scary, we better all start paying our carbon tax and all our green taxes. All the money we get taxed will fix the problem. Sure, yeah. Okay, that that's the standard denier. Uh, well, that's reaction. one of the calmer things. You you actually probably could bring hate speech kind of thing, actions against one or two of the comments that I sent. I could, Matt, and, and the same people. I have them all blocked on Twitter, but they do try to follow me into the studio here as well. And I appreciate that we're not going to go down that route. Okay, and I know you're not. No. Uh, listen, these are the facts. If you if you want to pick a fight with thermometers, well, good luck to you. Let's hear a little bit of the British Labour Party leader, Keir Starmer, because he was making a speech this week in which he was interrupted by protesters. And then he gave his opinion on the Just Stop Oil campaign. On Just Stop Oil, I mean, I just think they need to just stop. Um, they're in, you know, particularly this last week, they've been interrupting iconic sporting events, causing massive disruption. There's a huge arrogance involved that they're the only people that understand the argument. Their tactics, the only uh, tactics are going to win. <laughs> and when I put what they're doing against what we set out in our uh, mission about clean energy, about net zero, you can see the difference between, um, you know, protest and power the gluing yourself interrupting interfering with other people's lives in this arrogant way compared with um, the actual change we can bring about which is with a labor government absolutely committed to clean power by 2030 does he not have a point john gibbons that protest like this is virtue signaling perhaps by those who are engaged in it does not actually persuade anybody to the merits of the case that has been made and actually does nothing because what actually has to be done is done by governments in power sure it's a, to me it's a huge irony matt that the person we've just spoken to is the leader of the labor party this was the movement of working class people to wrestle some decent wages and conditions from, if you like, the, the, the merchant classes and so on. The labour movement has been about struggle, it has been about conflict, it has been about protests, and I'm not sure if Keir Starmer is aware of the history of the party that he actually fronts. I on. suspect he very much is aware what of is it, it, John. I say he knows damn well, and he comes himself from a very working class background. He's worked his way up through his studies, but he is not blind to the issues that face people in their daily working lives. Sure, but the biggest issue, hate to be a broken record about this, that faces anybody right now 
is climate breakdown. And I will say as but well... But then how does oh, going and interrupting tennis at Wimbledon or interrupting all sorts of events or stopping the traffic actually making the blindest bit of difference? I know you say it creates awareness. Awareness is created by conversations like those that we have in this radio studio. Yep. Not by going out on the street and leaving the air out of the tyres of SUVs. Well, I... I, I I understand where you're coming from, but every movement that has affected significant social change, from the suffragettes to the civil rights movement to the labour movement that Keir Starmer uh, so disrespects in his comment, all of these movements have at times been prepared to get physical, to go on the streets, to lay down their bodies in front of cannons and in front of uh, other forms of brutality. This is a simple fact of life, Matt. If Women were still waiting for the vote. Had they not taken to the streets, it might maybe it would have happened eventually. Maybe men would have just been nice about it and given to them. Probably would have taken another 50 years. We have so many examples of this where disruptive action is the... What it does, if you like, is it shifts the window of public opinion. Okay, yeah, in the short term, people are annoyed by it. Of course they are, right? But you could say the same, by the way, about the, the movement in Ireland, for example, uh, for gay rights and pride. You could say they were beaten off the streets, they were attacked, they were demonised. Now, should they just have written a letter to their TD or were they right to go out and protest and make noise and be disruptive, right? And the key thing I think we need to remember here with the Just Stop Oil protests so far, these are peaceful protests occurring in a constitutional democracy and Keir Starmer, by the way... They're disruptive. They're disruptive, sure. But Keir Starmer is a barrister which I find amazing, apart from being the Labour Party leader, this man is a barrister and this man has supported the British government's crackdown on the right to peaceful protest and assembly in a way, quite frankly, that wouldn't be... If you, if I took the, the names off the repressive legislation that the British government have pushed through and I asked you without identifying what country it was, you might well have said it's, it's not far be- behind what's happening in authoritarian regimes like Hungary and like Russia, in fact. It's an incredible thing that a Labour Party leader in his lust for power is prepared to throw away the very people who are putting their, their, their liberty at risk, they're, they're risking jail sentences. And Matt, what have they got to gain from this? These are regular people. These are doctors, these are scientists, these are school teachers. These are, these are postmen. What have they got to gain from this? What they're doing is they're raising the alarm. What Keir Starmer and his ilk are saying is, right, when the house is on fire, what you need to do is to take the battery out of the alarm bell, right? Switch off the alarm bell and then the crisis goes away. We know that the crisis only goes away when you put out the fire. But attacking the people who are raising the issue. And I mean, let's segue exactly from the segment we started this with from how can somebody like Keir Starmer be so unaware of this rapidly unfolding climate emergency? Maybe he's not unaware of it, John. Maybe he's aware but thinks that the way to deal with it is is through the measures that governments can introduce on their own and in partnership with other European governments and global, that there can be action taken in a way that gets public support. If that were the case, I mean, if, if, if we could solve the climate emergency by international consensus and intergovernmental agreements, we would have done it, Matt. We've been at this for over 30 years. And in that time, global emissions have doubled. 
Right. So, if having international conferences and we all get together and agree, what is it, net zero by 2050? In other words, we've got to be kidding. I'll be long retired by the time that comes up. This is what we hear from our politicians. You listen to your special interest groups here in Ireland. Each one of them is prepared to do absolutely nothing. Okay, but then, John, what has to happen then is that the politicians who are elected by the people, because we do live in representative democracies in this part of the world, have to bring forward measures that get popular public support. There's certain times where they actually can't bring in everything you might want because they just can't get the support from that. But if they are to bring along everybody with them to do what can be done, then surely it's not going to be done by disruptive measures like in getting in. I mean, if somebody, and I'm saying this now and hopefully it won't happen, if somebody sort of ran onto the pitch and disrupted the All-Ireland hurling final in a couple of few weeks' time, what actual good would that actually do? It would do nothing. It wouldn't change anybody's approach to dealing with the climate crisis. All it would actually do is piss off a few more people who mightn't actually then engage seriously. Well, there's been research uh, done on this. And what they found is that people on the what would be called the centre-right and the right of the political spectrum, they're the people who tend to be most sceptical of these issues, and yet they're the ones who respond best to disruptive protests. They're the ones who are actually awakened, if you like, from their slumber by disruptive protests. And I'll tell you why, Matt. When people, like you or I, right, regular middle-class folks, are prepared to put ourselves on the line for a cause for which we have no financial gain and take great personal risk, that begs the question of other people watching us saying, oh my God, these people are serious. They're not fanatics. They're not, they're not lunatics. They're acting based on science. And when, when, we, when we act in good faith, based on science, and if you like, pushing the envelope forward and, and, and encouraging our politicians to act strongly, then I'm not sure. I, I, I really feel that, if you like, the, the weight of history is on the side of those people who are prepared to take those decisions. If you go back to Martin Luther King back in the 1950s and 1960s, studies were done, Matt, in America. He was one of the hated, most hated men in America. He only became a saint after he was assassinated. American polls time and time again said that guy, Martin Luther King, is a troublemaker. If only the blacks would know their place, we'll give them their rights. They went on the streets, they put their bodies on the line, and they demanded their rights. That's how it works. John Gibbons, thank you. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today and-